Malta was once a hidden gem in the Mediterranean, but now it's being discovered more and more by North Americans. And that means it's diverse and offers something for everyone. You can scuba dive to explore sunken ships, eat traditional Maltese foods like pastizzi, a flaky pastry filled with ricotta cheese, visit one of three UNESCO World Heritage Sites, and so much more. Plus, Malta gets more than 300 days of sunshine, so it's a year-round destination. Get inspired and plan your trip today at visitmalta.com. Are you looking for an off-the-beaten-path island destination in the Mediterranean? I highly recommend Malta, an archipelago with 8,000 years of history. It's home to three UNESCO World Heritage Sites, including Valletta, Malta's capital. Malta also has the oldest freestanding stone architecture in the world, showcasing one of the British Empire's most formidable defense systems. If you travel for history, Malta has an impressive mix of domestic, religious, and military structures from the ancient, medieval, and early modern periods. It's also rich in culture. You'll find events and festivals all year round, plus beautiful beaches, a thriving nightlife, and a trendy gastronomical scene with seven Michelin-starred restaurants. Plan your trip today at visitmalta.com. Hi, and welcome to Travel Tales, a podcast from Abar Media. I'm your host, Senior Editor Aislinn Green. And for the past six years, I've had the pleasure of working with some of the most creative and interesting people in the world. Comedians, philosophers, novelists, They've all shared their stories with Abar's readers about getting out into the world and just reveling in it. And now, each week on Travel Tales, we'll hear from some of our favorite contributors about a trip that changed their life. In this episode, we'll travel with Shanaz Habib into the forests of India. Shanaz is a New York-based essayist and translator, and she teaches writing at the New School and at Bay University. While she's lived in New York for years, Shanaz was born and raised in an urban part of Kerala, a state in southern India. And as a child, she had heard stories from her grandmother of a wilder Kerala, one with elephants and medicinal plants, a Kerala that Shanaz herself had never met. So years later, as an adult, she decided to leave the comfort of her air-conditioned, snake-free Brooklyn home to learn to speak the language of the forest. Snakes are very shy, Shaji, our forest guide told me, as we stood in the garden of a tiny guest house, set deep inside Kerala's Wayanad mountain range, surrounded by jade green forests, all supposedly teeming with wildlife. We were about to embark on a steep two-mile uphill trek into the thick forest, but there was one problem. Forests have snakes, and I did not want to commune with anything that creeps. A few years ago, I decided to be a nature person. It was a rash decision, motivated by a chaotic combination of climate change anxiety, having a child, general self-improvement aspirations, and also this weird feeling in my chest when I read that tree branches will make space for each other in their canopy so they can all share light. I grew up in Kerala, 
the South Indian state that is famous for its beautiful tea plantations, palm-fringed beaches, monsoon-fed rivers, unspoiled forests. Travel writers have a hard time writing about Kerala without using the word lush. But you see, I'm the urban child of parents who eagerly left their lush villages behind to stake claims on the bustle and modernity of Kerala's biggest city, Kochi. I grew up on the sidelines of Kochi's never-ending urbanization. And as soon as I could, I left in search of even bigger cities. First Delhi, then New York, where I have been living now for almost 20 years. In the last few years, I dreamed of visiting that other Kerala where I did not grow up. I'd heard of this Kerala in the stories that my grandmother told us during power outages. Stories about proud elephant herds that roamed up and down mountains, about rivers with water so clear they were like flowing mirrors, about tribal people who knew of life-saving herbs that grew deep in the woods, stories she had learned from her grandmother. So much of that Kerala had disappeared, but it survived in some corners. Thus it was that I found myself picking a guest house in Vainad in northeastern Kerala, a region of mountains with hairpin curves and deep forests. Nestled inside several acres of forest, the guest house used to be a settler's bungalow in a colonial-era spice plantation. But the current owners have let nature take its course, and the forest has eagerly rushed in to reclaim the neat slopes where cardamom plants and pepper vines once grew. The real Kerala, I thought. Surely the forest would recognize me and take me back. You would be very lucky to see a snake. They're great at staying away from humans, Shaji the forest guide told me. He should have stopped there, but he didn't. So, funny incident a few years ago. Two local guys were riding a motorbike down the mountain when they saw an eagle flying off with a cobra. But the snake was struggling so much, the eagle dropped it right on top of the passenger on the motorbike. Crazy, huh? The snake was so confused, of course it bit the man. He should have worn a helmet, Shaji said. A helmet? I should have brought along a helmet for snakes falling from the sky? The minute I thought this, I felt something creeping up my leg and looked down in panic. But it was not a snake. It was a tiny black bug and it was almost at my knee. And how had I not noticed it till now? Congratulations, the annoyingly good-humoured Shaji said. That's a leech. They are very good for purifying your blood. That's when I noticed another leech, this time on my elbow. Shaji showed me how to get them off with a salt stick, which is a bundle of salt wrapped in cloth and tied to the bottom of a stick. Basically, it's a kiss of death for a leech. Before we set out on our hike, we'd put on special leech socks that clung to our skin and gumboots. But ten steps into the forest, I had droves of leeches groping up my boots trying to find skin. It was hard to focus on the rare species of wildflowers and butterflies that Shaji was pointing out to me because I was so busy tapping leeches with my salt stick. Soon, 
the vegetation became so dense that it shut out all the sunlight. As my eyes adjusted to the dimness, Shaji stopped. I smell tiger, he said. I sniffed the air. Nothing. Shaji pointed to tiger scratch marks on a tree trunk. He has walked this land alone a thousand times. For him, it was a library full of stories. Me, I was forest illiterate. A few moments later, Shaji stopped to show us an animal skeleton that lay in a clearing. It was a baby elephant, he told us, likely killed by a tiger that then ate the elephant over the course of several days. The rain-washed white bones lay starkly on grass that still showed evidence of the animal's fight. They looked like signs, and as I pieced them together, ribs, mud, blood-stained leaves, I felt like a toddler learning to read. You know how when you come back from a forest hike, it would be really nice to tell people that you barely escaped a man-eating tiger or that you saw a bunch of elephants having a conference near a lake? As we walked back to the guest house, I felt disappointed. I should have been happy there were no flying snakes landing on my head. But then again, what was the point of walking several miles in a forest if you didn't have animal sightings to report? But Shaji insisted on taking us for walks every day anyway. Somehow we always seemed to arrive at a corner of the forest right after some animal had moved through it. Shaji would show us a fruit tree that an elephant had snacked at 20 minutes ago. On a walk one day, we came across a row of matted patches of grass. Samba deer were hanging out in the sun here till we came around the corner, Shaji said. When we asked him how he knew, he pointed to their fresh hoof prints going down the path. One day, while lounging on the veranda, I noticed a faint movement. It wasn't a tiger or an elephant. It was just a green cricket caught in one of the cobwebs hanging from the wooden beam. Even as I watched, a wasp swooped in, plucked the cricket out of the web and carried it off. Such drama in a cobweb. Somehow it moved me. It dawned on me then that Kerala was not going to welcome me back with an elephant parade. I thought of that baby elephant whose skeleton we had seen on my first forest walk. The way its heart must have lurched when it felt the claws of the tiger. I found myself weighing the incredible cuteness of baby elephants against the tiger's need to live. And then I began to realize how absurd my attempt to love nature is. Nature is indifferent to the cuteness of baby elephants, to the overwrought emotions of nature fobs like me. In fact, I began to suspect nature is not the loving mother nature of my fantasies. And slowly, my fear of nature is turning into a grudging admiration for the forces of life and death that are at work in every tree. Admiration for the animals that knew how to be invisible 
and frustrate us while we walk through their habitats. And yes, admiration, even for the leeches, blindly groping their way towards my body heat. Admiration for their determination to be alive. Over the rest of the week, a previously invisible world became more and more visible. Instead of looking for grand animal sightings, my eyes learned to look for the tiny punctuation marks those animals leave behind. Woodpecker holds up the length of a tree like a flute. A pile of elephant dung with a dozen mushrooms protruding from its surface. The empty, amber-hued shell of a dead male cicada. Slowly, the world around us came into sharper and sharper focus. I'm still afraid of snakes, but by the time I had left Kerala, I had come to understand that learning the language of the forest would be much, much more than a week-long project. It is, in fact, a lifetime's work. I was far from reading the stories of the forest. But the forest had shown me her alphabet and whispered its sounds in my ear. And in my head, they felt almost like a mother tongue. That was Shanazadi. She's currently at work on a book about not traveling called Airplane Mode, due sometime soon from Catapult. And yes, Shanaz is still learning to speak nature. She walks miles every day in her local park, which is Brooklyn's Prospect Park, and says that she no longer thinks of nature as this entity that's just out there. Increasingly, she sees it everywhere, including in her apartment and in the cracks of sidewalks. I think of all the tiny organisms in the air around us, she says. And it's easier to see myself as part of this huge, often invisible, living ecosystem. Ready for more travel stories? Visit us online at afar.com slash travel tales. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Afar Media. If you enjoyed today's adventure, we hope you'll come back next week for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And please be sure to rate and review us. It helps other travelers find the show. This has been Travel Tales, a production of Afar Media and Boom Integrated. Our podcast was produced by Aislinn Green, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. Post-production was by John Marshall Media staff Jen Grossman and Clint Rhodes. Music composition by Alan Koresha. And a special thanks to Laura Redmond, Sarah Storm, and Irene Wang. I'm Aislinn Green, your zoomed-out, under-traveled host. I can't wait to hit the road again. Until we all freely can, remember that travel begins the moment we walk out our front door. Everyone has a travel tale. What's yours? <laughs>